Celebrating 710-WOR's 100 years as the voice of New York. Hey, we're older than the Empire State Building. Here are Len Berman and Michael Riedel in the morning. Hi, I'm Alon Altman. And I'm Dave Juskow. And this is Billy Joel A to Z. Billy Joel, he wrote so many songs. Some fast, some slow, and some go on too long. And hidden gems, even the turds It ends at Z, not A With your friends Elon and Dave Hello everybody and welcome to Village All A to Z Today we bring you a New York City journalistic living legend He is a Broadway theater critic and columnist for the New York Post Where I discovered him for over 20 years He's one of those guys that may terrify you as a producer, but you love him as a critic because he tells it like it is. His 2016 book, Razzle Dazzle, The Battle for Broadway, is an amazing book that has impeccable research, backstabbing gossip, and fascinating stories of how Broadway became Broadway and its staying power. During the pandemic, he released a follow-up book entitled Singular Sensation, The Triumph of Broadway that continued the story of Broadway from the 90s into the present era and how Broadway helped New Yorkers recover after September 11th. He's currently the co-host of Len Berman and Michael Riedel in the morning, weekdays from 6 to 10 a.m., which can be heard on the legendary 710 WOR station, which is now celebrating its 100th birthday this year. Just before the pandemic, I was lucky enough to sit down with him, and we had, had a glass of wine at the Comedy Cellar while he appeared on my podcast, where we had a great time talking about everything from Broadway to James Bond to acting to the 70s television show Columbo, of course. And even though he talks for four hours a day, every day of the week, he's been kind enough to join us today to talk a little Billy Joel. Please welcome to the show for the first time, Michael Riedel, everybody. Hello, I Michael. Have nothing, I have nothing to say. I'm all talking. <laughs> I know. I took <laughs> care it. of everything in the intro. <laughs> yeah. I had to be a big shot, didn't I? That's Billy. Hey, <laughs> <laughs> I saw what you did there. Yeah. Well, I asked you to be on the show today because I... I notice you guys do seem to tweet a lot about Billy Joel. I don't know whether you have you ever met Billy Joel? I'll just start there. Uh, yeah, I have. Um, I got to know Billy a bit when he came to Broadway with a show called Moving Out, directed right. by Twyla Tharp and uh, used Billy's music. And I met Billy. Uh, I remember at the uh, I think there was a, some sort of a press meet and greet and he was there and we chatted for a bit. Seemed like a nice enough guy. But then. The saga of moving out, I became deeply involved in, uh, which yes. we can get into later. And then as the show was in serious trouble at one point, and it's one of the few shows that I had seen in my career in the theater that was so awful out of town and was so great by the time it got to New York that the, the way they changed the show was really remarkable. And I wrote several articles about it. And through those articles, I got to know Billy pretty well. And at one point, I know I was informally and I stress informally, suggesting um, or advising him on a musical that he wanted to write that I thought was going to be a great idea, but he never got around to doing it. So well, what was that one what about? Is it? Yeah, <laughs> don't leave us hanging. <laughs> this is the stuff I'm not going to tell you because I'm going to write it. No, no, Billy had a Billy had a great idea for a musical. I remember I, had, I think I had lunch with him and he said, you know, what do you think about this idea? And the idea was he wanted to write about the music business when he first broke into it 
in oh the late sixties and early seventies. Oh, Alon, that wanted, would have been a dream for us. Yeah, right? he, did, he, he did not want to write about what it was like when he became successful. He wanted to write about what it was like when he was starting out and all of the people who controlled the record business. And he wanted to write in the style of popular and rock music of that era of the late sixties, very early seventies. Of course he wanted, he wanted to write about people like Ahmet Erdogan and Clive Davis and um, who were some of the other big weeks he had in mind. But I I had suggested to him, I said, you know, you really need to read this book called Hitmen, which is a great, great book about the music business and all of its uh, colorful and slightly nefarious characters. And I remember he said he said he'd heard of the book, but he never read it. So you got to read it. And he said he was going to read it. And uh, I was looking forward to seeing what, what he was going to do with that idea, which I thought was a great idea. But at the end of the day, I think it's just easier to go to Madison Square Garden and make $200,000 performance than it is to write a Broadway show. <laughs> of course it is. And so the weird part is, is that, first of all, that musical would have been amazing because if you figure he's going to write 60s, 70s songs, you, you almost have like an innocent man, too. Yeah. Which for any Billy Joel fan would have been unbelievable. Any kind of new music. And if you'd written it directly for Broadway would have been unbelievable. Right, Alon? I mean, that would have been amazing in itself. Meanwhile, we just finished a song in the O's called Oyster Bay, which is exactly (laughs) what you were talking about. In an early unreleased track, just talking about how much he kind of hated the music business, hated being in L.A. or California, wanted to move back to Oyster Bay. It seems like that's what he was talking about doing. Well, he, you know, his good, his idea was, and it's a good one because a number of um, artists, writers, successful people have said this to me. They said the, it's the struggle where the drama is. Once you make it to the top, then it's just, I made this money. I made that much money. I went into rehab. I got divorced. I lost this much money. Then I made it all back again. And they say, it's boring. It's boring once you're at the top, but it is that struggle climbing your way up the ladder and all the colorful. And as I say, slightly sleazy sometimes evil people you meet along the way, which is where the drama is. And he instinctively knew that. So I'm sad that he never wrote that uh, musical because there's, well, you see how successful the Carol King musical is beautiful. Yeah, right. And that also shows her, her climb to tapestry and her particular struggles, uh, which makes it a, a, a potent show. And, but Billy was adamant. He did not want to do a show where he used, he, where he recycled his old songs. He said, I've done that with moving out. They've used my songs. Right. I want to write an original score, but I yeah. want it to be in the vernacular of the er- late sixties, early seventies. Oh man. We really missed out on an opportunity there. Yeah. We missed out on an opportunity. Michael, you said it in one of the early articles about moving out. So funny. You, cause I, I couldn't even believe it. You said that, that he was thinking about writing some new songs just to help the narrative along and moving out. And that, that I was like, oh, that would have been unbelievable, too. That's why I feel like I didn't want to see that. I don't like seeing those jukebox musicals. I don't like seeing with other people singing. I, you know, even um, we talk about this all the time. The Sting musical, the, the Last Ship, when they when it when they, it was failing and they started putting in Sting songs and then. But you're not hearing Sting sing it. and You're getting angry or the Green Day musical. I, I can't. I, those ones aren't for me. But boy, if he had done some new music, that show could have been moving out. I would not consider a jukebox musical because it was directed and choreographed by a genius, Twyla Tharp. It was a ballet, really. It was a contemporary ballet using Billy Joel's music. And you had an amazing band on stage and you had this kid. I can't remember his name now. But he uh, sounded Kavanaugh. Exa- is that? Yeah, is I think. That yeah, it? I think that's what it was. Yeah. But he sounded exactly like Billy Joel. And because of Twyla's artistry, it was far head and shoulders above any 
kind of jukebox musical. And it was not, you know, Billy Joel's life at all, or it was not, you know, some dopey musical based on the Beatles where, uh, you know, he falls in love with a girl named Lucy and they sing Lucy in the sky with diamonds, all that crap that they do. That's what I thought it was. <laughs> no, it was an, it was an original idea for a musical all done through dance, no dialogue, no dialogue at all. It was all Billy's music and Twyla Tharp's great ballet, modern dancing. And it was the story of uh, four, four friends, two of whom get married. I guess you could see them as Brenda and Eddie, if you want to. And you go through um, their youth and then you go through their experiences during the Vietnam War and the aftermath and what the, the toll the war took on their, their minds, their souls and their relationships. See, but I, I just wonder if that's I mean, I know the show was technically successful. I just think I, I just wonder if a ballet was the right move for a Billy Joel musical. I guess it worked really. I mean, it worked. It worked absolutely brilliantly. But that then again, it, I mean, I know it, it lost to Hairspray in the Tonys, though. Yeah, well, Hairspray was going to be uh, it was just a bigger and it was fine show Hairspray, but it was just a bigger commercial hit than uh, Moving Out ever would be, although Mo- Moving Out did well. But uh, I, I thought Moving Out was one of the best things I've ever seen going to on Broadway. It was so moving. Really? And, well, yeah, I mean, I don't know if you're familiar with Twilight Tharp, but the woman is a genius, you know. No, Her no, dances are some of the great dances of, of modern choreography. Um, she's, up there with Jer- she's up there with Jerome Robbins and Merce Cunningham. Uh, did did, did she do um, Grand Hotel? Was no, that no, that was, that was Tommy Toon. Tommy Toon. I, I do get them mixed up because there's two T's. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, Tommy actually, Tommy actually did a very big favor to moving out, and he's responsible for some ways for helping turn the show around when it was in trouble out of town. Really? Yeah. Well, what was it that was in trouble, and what, what changed about it? Well, here was the thing. So I went out to Chicago, where it started. It was, I think it was at the Cadillac Palace Theater, if I'm not mistaken. The show was awful. And it was so, there was so, so many dopey things in it where um, Anthony works in a grocery store and there'd be a guy stacking shelves. He would be Anthony. And then Brenda and Eddie would come out and the guy would be Eddie and this one would be Brenda. And it was, it was dumb on that level. And then the dances didn't all hang together and you could not follow the story. You had no idea who you were supposed to be looking at, who the main characters were. It was all very muddled, very confused. And it just seemed to be this show with a, a good, decent band and a Billy Joel imitator and a lot of people leaping around as if they were in Swan Lake underneath the band, which was above the, uh, 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 on top of the uh, proscenium arch. And it was terrible. It was just terrible. Well, you actually uh, quoted, this is my favorite, Sobered up singer, songwriter, Billy Joel may no longer need rehab, but his Broadway bound show sure does. Among the problems, <laughs> the entire first act. That's a quote. <laughs> God, I was good back in the day. Um, That's when you write something like that and then you sit down and have dinner with Billy Joel. I mean, uh, well, I know well, he reads happened, this stuff. I, believe it or not, I went to the opening night party um, in Chicago. Right. You said, right. He wasn't showing up to anything. Because he was getting sober and he was drink, had drink, but he showed up to the opening night party. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I went to the opening night party in Chicago and my, I, my sister was then living in Chicago. So I took her to see the show and we entered the, um, the room at the high, forget what hotel the uh, party was at, but a good friend of mine, a guy named Emmanuel Eisenberg, famous Broadway producer who did all of Neil Simon shows. Great guy. And Manny ran into my sister and he said to her, he said, Keep your brother away from me. I can't talk to him. I can't talk to him. 
because Manny knew how bad the show was. Oh, so then I sit down with my friends, Charlene and Jimmy Niederlander, the Jimmy Niederlander of the organization. Jimmy was one of the big producers of moving out and was going to go into his theater. And Jimmy said to me, he had this kind of funny, squealy, high-pitched voice. So what do you think? <laughs> and I was trying to be diplomatic. You know, I wasn't going to go to someone's open air party and say, your show sucks. The whole first act <laughs> needs to be in rehab. <laughs> I was like, well, you know, it's out of town. You'll fix it. And Charlene turned to me. She said, I think it's dreadful. <laughs> really loud. <laughs> and I remember Twyla looking at her and Billy Joel looking at her and the press agent having a complete meltdown because the wife of the theater owner and producer just uh, told me, Michael Riedel, that she thinks the show is dreadful. Yipes. So, so then, so what happened when I, I kind of wrote it off, I totally wrote it off. And I thought, well, here comes a dud. And then um, my friend, uh, Scott Rudin, <laughs> God rest his soul. Scott Rudin, Scott Rudin would go to see um, early previews of every show, every show. He would go to the first preview of every show to check it out. Called me. And, and uh, so moving out finishes in Chicago, comes to New York plays its first preview. And I was paying zero attention to it. Zero attention. Scott called me saying, you know, this show is really good. I said, no, it's, that's not possible. I saw it in Chicago. It sucked. He said, no, I'm telling you, it's really good. They fixed it. I said, I don't believe you. I don't, I, what I saw you is unfixable. I said, well, I'm just telling you, I thought it was terrific. So I thought, all right, well, I'll, you know, wait and see. And uh, I went to opening night and the buzz on the show, aside from Scott, was just bad, very, very negative because of uh, the bad reviews out of town and because of my column, I guess. <laughs> so at the opening night, we're all there and everyone's saying, oh, you know, here's another dud we got to sit through. I need a drink. First act went on, boom. It was incredible. Intermission, everybody around me said, I can't believe this. We all, we all thought it was terrible. And I was one of them saying, what? How did they do it? They've taken this morass of incomprehensibility and changed it into this incredibly moving dramatic show with those great songs and beautiful dancing. So then I went back and I did a series of articles on how they fixed it and what was going on behind the scenes, which I didn't know until I began to dig into it was there was a real standoff between Twyla and uh, her producers, Manny Eisenberg and the Niederlanders and Twyla who can be a little, um, shall we say uh, diva ish and uh, artistic when you're the best. Yeah. Well, Twyla, would not take any advice from what she would call the money men. She was not interested in the opinions of the money men, i.e. the people putting up the $12 million for her to do her show. And they were saying, Twyla, it's confusing. We don't know who to follow. We don't know what the characters are, what's going on here. You can't have a show that confuses the audience. They'll never be with you. She said, it's my artistic statement and you money men don't know what you're talking about. Well, I'll tell you, one of the shrewdest money men out there, Jimmy Niederlander's son, Jimmy Jr., he figured out something, which is really kind of brilliant producing. He said, okay, she won't listen to us because we're the money men. But why don't we call in our old buddy, Tommy Toon, who's an artist the way she is. And let's have Tommy look at the show. And maybe he can talk to her. So Tommy goes to see the show. And this was in Chicago. Now, remember, Twyla's hearing nothing but criticism from the money men. It's terrible. It's awful. We threatened to close it unless you fix it. But she's not doing anything because she doesn't trust the money men. Tommy goes to see it and he meets with her. He says, I think, I think it's really terrific. The only person to tell her that her work was terrific. The dances are beautiful. The concept is strong. Songs, of course, are great. But Tommy said, but, you know, it's not a modern dance piece. It is a musical. And there are certain things 
you have to do in a musical to bring the audience in, to let them know the stories they're going to follow. And Twyla, because Tommy was not a money man, but an artist, she heard that for the first time. And then for the next three weeks in Chicago, she proceeded to completely restructure the show, to lay out the story, and to convey to the audience the four characters that you were going to follow throughout the evening. And she did it in the simplest but most effective way. You had this big opening number with, I can't remember what the song was, but people- no, It's still rock and roll to me, I think, is the opening. Still rock and roll, yeah, yeah. Although originally it was running on ice. What? Yeah. Which is crazy. <laughs> well, I guess that's what the, one of the changes. Number first change. Yeah. First change. Well, do not let's put use a song somebody's heard of. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. Still rock and roll to me. I guess that's what it was. And, you know, people were it was establishing the kind of era of New York City and the neighborhood that they're in at that time. And they're all, you know, jumping around doing Twilight Art moves. And then the very end of the number, four people step forward to the lip of the stage and each spot, a spotlight hits each one. One, two, three, four. Boom. Now you know these are the four people I'm going to oh follow. Oh, my and God. Watch. Isn't that interesting? The most easiest of all fixes. And uh, it was right there the whole time. And Absolutely. And then, and then you were never lost. You followed these four characters as their oh, lives intertwine and fray and break apart and they come together. And the most moving part of the show, and I, I, I still have, uh, I get the chills when I think of it, was um, Captain Jack Will Get You High Tonight, which is a great, great song. And one of the principles a great dancer whose name i forgot now oh by the way these dancers were the best i mean they were from twilight arts twilight tharp's company so they were some of the greatest dancers of the world and i think a couple of them were nominated for um tony awards and this guy whose name escapes me now terrific terrific dancer he's the guy who goes off to vietnam and he comes back and he has um i guess you would call it post-traumatic disorder and he he becomes a drug drug addict and heroin and they have this incredible dance where he's in really into the dregs, really at the bottom of uh, the heroin addiction. Captain Jack will get you high tonight. But then as the second act moves on, you see him gradually get out of that and become sober. And the very ending is, uh, God, I can't remember what the song is now. It's <laughs> so long ago, but a very upbeat Billy Joel song. And you could just feel the audience just had this sense of relief that this guy was not going to die of a heroin overdose but he got his life back together and the show en ended on just this incredibly joyous, upbeat note, but it was Twyla's amazing ability with dance to really make you feel that you were with this guy during his heroin addiction and how horrible and how awful that is. And she was able to do it, not through dialogue, but just through Billy's songs and her brilliant choreography. It's weird that you mentioned that only because that was the exact same premise of the green day American idiot. And yet it didn't work. No, so. no. <laughs> so, you know, what seems it all sounds sort of obvious. And, and in, in American idiot, it was obvious. But in Twyla Tharp's hands, it was incredibly sophisticated, complex and very, very moving. And, you know, I think a, that's that's just the genius of, of Twyla Tharp. She's able right. To the, just like you said, the uh, what was the first thing, like the, the classy, the, uh, the part of it, the of somebody like that, which I guess American idiot didn't have. Yeah. But then, uh, since we're talking about or you mentioned like New York City back in the day, some of the things, one of your articles was about that they should bring back the I love New York campaign. That was reason I remember I because I had actually I think I emailed you. Oh, yeah. I'm like, oh, my God, I that's such a good idea. Oh, they were doing it. They did 
from the coronavirus. They did this old one that you and I know, Alon, I don't think you'd, you know, you weren't alive. Um, in the 70s, they had this I Love New York campaign. I, I know I Love it. New York. Right. But it was this this commercial stuff. And your your article was so funny that I had no idea about the Sinatra stuff that oh, uh, he, you know, he was so angry that he had to, he came in, he, uh, Alani pulled the crusty, the crown clown, he came in the limo, said his line. He's like, all right, we're done. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll <laughs> give take. you the story. I'll, I'll give you the story because I had a friend who was, um, who was on the shoot of that commercial. This was at the time uh, when they were trying to save New York city from the battle days of the seventies and early eighties. And they were making the famous, I love New York campaign, which focused on Broadway. And the original campaign was just strictly, Broadway shows, Chorus Line, Annie, The Wiz, little snippets of each show. And it really began to turn things around. Uh, box offices jumped, restaurant restaurant um, receipts jumped up. And so then they made a series of the I Love New York campaigns. And they got star-studded as they went along. And one of the ones they made was Frank Sinatra. And the shoot was going to be Frank Sinatra in Times Square at night, surrounded by the cast of the then-hit show Cats. All, the, <laughs> all these furry creatures leaping around Sinatra. Sinatra agrees to do it, and the director approaches Sinatra's people and says, okay, we would like to you know, have a rehearsal in the afternoon. We're going to do the shoot at night, but we want to have the rehearsal in the afternoon, so we have the choreography, and you know, we'll tell Mr. Sinatra what he should say and where he should sit, and we're going to have the cats leaping around him. And Sinatra's guy says, Frank Sinatra does not rehearse. <laughs> well, you know, but we got to set up the shot, and we got to make sure the cats know where he's going to be. He said, Frank Sinatra does not rehearse. You let him know what time he has to be there for the shoot. He'll be there. And by the way, Frank Sinatra does not do more than one take. <laughs> <laughs> In fact, a friend of Frank's once told me, he said, Frank's, the two phrases Frank hated were take two and last call. <laughs> <laughs> So anyway, they rehearsed during the day with a Frank Sinatra stand-in and they got the cats leaping around the stand and all that. Comes the appointed time, maybe 10 o'clock night, middle of Times Square. The shoot's all set up. The cats are all waiting there. Limo pulls <laughs> up. Sinatra gets out of the limo. He says, what's my line? I love New York. <laughs> open. They said, I love New York because it's open all night. Fine. Where do you want me? There's your mark, sir. All these nervous cats. I knew one of the actors who was a cat that we were like, we were just in awe of being around Frank Sinatra. But he did not say anything. He didn't look at anybody. He said, all right, let's go. Action. The cats leap around. And he goes, I love New York because it's open all night. That's it, boys. I'm out of here. Gets up in the limo and gone. <laughs> that was it. It would great if he was like, I love Newark. <laughs> right. Hoboken it was is my town. <laughs> fascinating because when you watch the commercial, he seems like he's having you'd never know he was like that, even though we all know he's yeah. like that. That's right. I love New York. You know why? Of course, it's open all night. All night. But the, the reason I also brought it up is because they made a new campaign and they used New York state of mind. Right. As the I Love New York campaign, which you uh, wrote about. And you said they made two campaigns. And although they're very nice and they check all the boxes and in this uh, kind of culture we live in now, with, you know, race and all that kind of stuff, it's not working. Right. Right. And even well, all they the were, they were those those campaigns, they were a little muted and flat, I thought. And now it's not all 
altogether their fault because you got to remember it was during COVID. So they couldn't have a whole bunch of people together the way they could in the I Love New York campaign. You couldn't have you couldn't have all the actors. You couldn't have a cast of 100 people in Times Square singing and dancing when they did the 9-11 campaign. You know, they did uh, New York, New York, and you had the cast of all the Broadway shows in Times Square. And that was a great campaign, too. So they couldn't put people together. So just by nature, it had, a, I thought, a very muted quality that um, probably reflected, I suppose, the move, mood of the city back then. But I really thought you needed something more uplifting to uh, get people to get out of their sweatpants and go to see a show. Yeah. So just, um, you know, we don't want to take up too much of your time. Do yeah, hurry up. I'm out of here. <laughs> have you <laughs> that's it boys to, <laughs> have you been to any of the msg shows yeah i did we went to um uh yeah uh, before the pandemic we went it was great i mean it's like billy joe you're in billy joel's living room with fifty thousand people because it's it's clear that you know the guy can do this in his sleep not that he does it in his sleep but he just kind of comes out and he he has no set set song list he just plays what he wants to play and then he talks to you a little bit Tells you about, you know, oh, I just had dinner at this place. <laughs> I ordered the uh, spaghetti carbonara. And, blah, 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 and, blah, and then, yeah, then I, uh, what, what do you, what song you guys want to do? You want, what do you want to do now? Yeah, you know, somebody from the band yells out, oh, let's do that one. Okay. Or he says, oh, what do you guys want to hear? And then he's just like, it's Billy. It's, 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 it's like it's his own podcast, but it's in front of 50,000 people, 50, like, however people. it is. Yeah, that's yeah, so yeah. funny. I, I, we haven't been to one yet, so we don't know how it works. Exactly, well, not together. I've been to one. Oh. It's real, but it's really informal, isn't it, Alana? I mean, he just comes out there and does. Yeah, what's cool is in between the songs, he has his little jokes that he does, and he's yeah. so funny. Like he and he's yeah. he makes fun. He understands. Like he's not doesn't have a big head about it. Like if a song is silly to him, he'll make a joke about how oh, this was a stupid song. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's good. It's it's a it, it's a fun show. Do you ever uh, you know talk to him on the rate when you're on the radio or anything? I mean, talk- no. I, I think we we reached out to interview him at one point, and for some reason, it didn't work out. He doesn't do that much press anymore. I mean, he doesn't have to. Yeah, know? he doesn't have to. Yeah, well, you know, why bother with idiots like me and Len Berman? When <laughs> every time you do a show, you sell out. Yeah, a good point. But uh, I wouldn't look at it that way. But I see what you're saying. I just uh, are. I mean, are you a Billy Joel fan in general? Were you before moving out? Yeah, no, I, I love Billy Joel growing up as a kid because I got that the classic album 52nd Street. You know, back in those days, you bought albums because you listened to this thing called the radio. Yep. <laughs> and there were these songs on the radio. And if they were really popular, they were on the radio all the time. And the big song when I was a kid, I forget when 52nd Street came out, early 70s, must have been. 78 or 9. 78, 78 or 9. 78. 78. Yeah, so I would have been 12, uh, 13, 14, I guess. The big song was Big Shot, which I... had no real understanding of what it all meant except for the fact that I was a kid in upstate New York and I love New York city. And it seemed to me a song that just captured New York city at that point, you know, eating at a lanes. I didn't even know what a lanes was, but I just had this image of being in New York city, being in a limousine, going to all the parties, going to all the fancy restaurants. And I love that song. And the other song I loved, I had this enormous crush on this girl named Tammy white in uh, junior high and Tammy white. Well, let's just say she did not have a crush on me. In fact, she was completely uninterested in me and she was going out with a uh, captain of a football team, of course. And I would see them. Got to remember, I'd see them walking hand in hand down the hallway and I, my heart would break and 
we used to have a roller skating thing every Friday night and they'd roller skate hand in hand. They were always holding hands. Made me sick. And of course, every time my heart was breaking, I'd turn on the radio and be, honesty is such a lonely word. <laughs> like, okay, where's the noose? Where are the razor blade? I'm taking the gas pipe. <laughs> It's so funny. I think we, Alana and I were both smiling too, because with a uh, big shot, I, I was saying the exact same, we were about the same age. So I was saying the exact same thing. It's probably one of the big reasons you and I both moved to New York city, a song like that. We, I said the exact same thing when we covered big shot. I'm like, I never heard of Elaine. I didn't know what it was, but then but when I finally was- went there yeah. as an adult, it was, and, and you, you might've gone further, but I, I went after it was kind of, a, you know, in the two thousands after oh, well, its was- heyday. Yeah. And but still for you and me, so exciting between oh, yeah. Billy Joel and Woody Allen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Being yeah. at Elaine's was the big deal in that. Mario Puzo. He was yeah. there all the time. Right. Well, my, right. my story of the Lanes was I my first apartment out of college, graduated Columbia in 1989. And my very first apartment with my uh, uh, Columbia roommate was on 88th and 2nd Avenue, oh, which was right, right around the corner from Elaine's. Walk up apartment. I think we paid. 750 bucks for it. Tiny little walk up ramshackly place. And I was only vaguely aware of Elaine's, well, I guess through the Billy Joel song. <clears throat> so one day I decided, well, I had no money back in those days. But I thought, well, I'll go, I'll sit at the bar at Elaine's and I'll have a glass of wine. You know, ooh, so sophisticated. I'm having a glass of wine at Elaine's. So I walk in and I mean, I'm what, 21 years old. And I sit at the bar and the bartender. What do you, what kid, what do you want? Could I have a glass of wine? <laughs> Back then it was $5 a glass. So I'm sitting there and all of a sudden this big blousy woman with these huge glasses comes over and she said, what are you doing here, kid? <laughs> and I said, well, I'm having a, a glass of wine. <laughs> I live around the corner and she, she looks at the bartender. And she says, bring him some pasta. Oh. So, <laughs> And it was Elaine herself. And she yeah. took a liking to me. And I told her I was, you know, I was a, I was a writer, you know, I'd written two articles, but I was a writer and she loved writers. I was working at theater week magazine then. And she said, come in anytime. So I used to go, I would sit at the bar. She would talk to me for a bit. And then I would say, geez, I think that's Woody Allen. Oh yeah, it is Woody Allen. I think that might be Martin Scorsese. Oh my goodness. Yeah, it is Martin Scorsese. Wow. I th- is that Diane Sawyer and Mike Nichols? Oh Yeah. It is Diane Sawyer and Mike Nichols. <laughs> you were and there in the sit, heyday. I, I would sit at the bar. She never charged me for the pasta. She always charged me for the glass of wine, which is five bucks. But I never got charged for the food. That's unbelievable. What a great, what a great New York and Elaine's story, which, you know, it's hard to describe to people. Uh, you know, it's allure because when you went there, it wasn't like I'm like, this is Elaine's. But the, it was about her and it was about the thing. Oh, my friend was the head chef there. And I've always told people Elaine's wasn't known for being very good food. Yeah, <laughs> It's like, it's not that great to know the head chef at Elaine's go figure. <laughs> That's right. But, but then, you know, later on, as I kind of climbed my own particular way up the ladder, I would go there with people who uh, would have very good tables and you'd be like table two. Sure. Table one, wow. Table three, and, and it was great fun because then everybody was drinking back in those days. And, uh, the tables would all, after several drinks, the tables would all kind of meld together and you'd basically have this incredible party of wow. great New York characters. I remember I did a story once uh, on, it was called, uh, I went on a martini safari. I was running around Manhattan trying to find the best martini. 
And I went around with this guy named Barnaby Conrad III. That's not a real the, name. No, it is Barnaby Conrad <laughs> III. Yeah. But you can't go on a martini run with a guy named that. You're clearly making up all this story. I mean, that's that's <laughs> the exact guy you want to go run around a martini. Exactly. Barnab- Barnaby Conrad III, who was <laughs> heir to a hotel fortune in San Francisco. I'm changing my name to that. Yeah, he wrote a book on the history of the martini. <laughs> of course he did. He did. So <laughs> you I, can't I, not write a book like that when your name is Barnaby Conrad III. Exactly. <laughs> Five o'clock, someone's got a cocktail shaker out if you're Barnaby Conrad III. So I had this idea. I said, you know, I called his publicist. I said, he's going to be in New York. Yeah, I'll be promoting the book. I said, would he go on a, mar- I called it a martini safari. So we'll go around all night long and we'll be sampling martinis, various bars. And, and she said, oh, that's a great idea. He said he wants to know, can he bring his friend Dale DeGroff, who was the head of beverage management at the Rainbow Room, who's a legendary mixologist. So Dale and Barnaby and I, we meet at uh, the Rainbow Room to begin our safari. And and we all said, okay, you know, martinis can kill you. And I said, we can't get, you know, I got to be alert. I got to be taking notes and all that. And they said, yeah, we don't want to get drunk. And and Dale said, look, all you do is you just you take a taste. You can spit it out. Just give a smell. Just one sip, and that's fine, you know. So we begin at um, the Rainbow Room with a whole mass of oysters that Dale just ordered from the chef, you know, just fabulous oysters, oysters. And then we all said, "Okay, we'll have one martini just to get going." So we had one martini, but after that, we're only going to smell, sip, spit. You know? <laughs> so we begin to make our move around the city. We the first place we go to is Sparks Steakhouse. Sure, right on Forty Third. 46 and second though right in the east yeah, yeah. So, where uh paul Castellano got murdered right got whacked by john Gotti. yeah right so and i'm i'm interviewing all the bartenders and sparks is a great place because the bartenders have been around forever and the guy makes make a martini for us and we sit, just have a little sip sip and it was great and i said to the bartender i said boy this is a delicious martini how do you do it he said well the secret is people want to dry martinis that's not a martini that's just gin or vodka you have to use the vermouth. Vermouth is what the combination of the vermouth and the gin or the vodka is what gives the drink its distinctive flavor. And he said, and you have to use the very best vermouth because vermouth is um, herbaceous. And he said, it's two, two to one, two parts gin or vodka to one part vermouth. But he said, if you don't use the vermouth, it's not a martini. So I'm sipping this and Dale and Barnaby are sipping and this is great. And all of a sudden, I realized we'd finished our second martini. All right, now let's go on. Well, the sips became swallows. The swallows became drinks and the drinks became glasses. And at four o'clock in the morning, we ended up at Elaine's. <laughs> of course, bombed did. out of our mind. <laughs> and I still to this day, I have my notebook from that adventure. And my notes are very precise in the beginning. And then they get a little <laughs> And by the time I'm at Elaine's drinking my 15th martini, it's just a bunch of lines dribbling <laughs> off the page. <laughs> That's why I was hoping the story was going to go. I like a good martini, and I always have trouble finding a good one. Once in a while, I love getting martini, but having more than two puts me out. So you guys oh, what's must the great? Been... <laughs> what's the great Dorothy Parker line? I like a martini, two at the most. Three, I'm under the table. Four, I'm under my host. <laughs> that's a good you know um i know we like james bond i i think in the the in uh, yeah it's uh oh no it's uh, uh goldfinger i think he says uh i told the uh pilot liquor for three <laughs> and he's like it's only me i know 
or whatever. But but you know, James Bond always drinks. You know, we obviously know the vodka martini and stuff. So it's always you know. Uh, Ro- Roger Moore had a great line about James Bond and playing James Bond because you know Roger uh, Roger is my favorite James Bond. And but he we're played, the we're the appropriate age where of course I know so. exactly. <laughs> but yeah, Roger 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 said you know you can't really take this thing seriously. He said, I mean. What kind of spy is he? Every bar he goes into the world, they know what he drinks. <laughs> exactly. Right. <laughs> right. And they, right. All, every character in all the movies, like, I know it, vodka martini shaking that stir. Right. Right. Oh, he's undercover. <laughs> <laughs> I know. But for us, it was perfect. Oh, yeah. Oh, my. Well, we lost Alon. He's at a hotel. He's performing in Philadelphia this week. And I think they cut off his internet service at this time. <laughs> what does he do? He's a comic. Oh. He's actually certainly, very funny. It certainly doesn't add much to your show. I think he well, said two things. <laughs> he, he's always he's very respectful, and it's not his fault. You and I don't let him talk very much. We have a lot to say, so you know, you know, I do. And between the two of us, forget about it. So he usually asks. We usually have his final question, which is, "What is your favorite Billy Joel song?" Uh, I think I would have to go. I would have gone with with honesty but ever since uh, i saw moving out and uh hmm. even though it's not billy singing on the uh, cast album it's a very good cast album i think i'd have to go with captain jack will get you high tonight i find that song really de- deeply moving distressing unsettling but also quite moving so I, see, I, I, so I, you you like that kind of because i was going to say i'm surprised you would pick honesty because it hurt you when with that girl right, but right. now i know the kind of person uh, you are the kind That's of song right. too, well you, like. you know i mean i'm a heroin addict myself so uh, <laughs> i love that song <laughs> see i'm the exact opposite i only like the uplifting ones i don't like the sad ones oh yeah 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 no yeah. i yeah and i have to go with captain jack will get you high tonight i think that's a remarkable and brutally honest honest song oh yeah and but i think uh, you know as we know billy went through all that stuff and a game changer for him too was he a heroin addict or was it just alcohol Oh, I think it's just alcohol. I, I don't know anything about him being a heroin addict. Oh, Alon, we missed you. It's audio. Oh, <laughs> Alon, uh, we just I, I asked your question. Uh, what was his favorite Billy Joel song? <laughs> oh, <laughs> it's Captain. You Jack, used my way. question. How Sorry. Dare you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I told him what the story was over there. <laughs> so, <laughs> right. Right. Yeah, um, I'm in a I, terrible hotel room. That's all right. Thank you. Uh, but Michael, you, thank don't, you. Don't, don't, don't they put you comics up at Ritz Carlton or Four Seasons? We're not there yet. <laughs> hey, this is the Club Pointers. It's one of the best uh, 25. Welcome to La Quinta. <laughs> <laughs> Michael, thank you so much for coming on the show today and ta- telling, you know, you do have some of the best stories ever. You, you know, you're not true, but they're great stories. <laughs> <laughs> no, but you're such a New Yorker and you're so cool. And uh, I love I miss your column is not as frequent as it used well, of course broadway was away for a while are, are, are you going to be continuing to write for the post once in a while or yeah i think so i mean i don't i don't think i'll ever go back to the grind of a um of a oh, weekly column weekly, right because, frankly the radio pays a lot better but you know i write for anybody now i, I wrote a big piece on hugh jackman and the music man for vanity fair i've got a how was that uh, by the way i was i really don't want to see it but i do like hugh jackman well, I, I was a little disappointed in it. Um, it. It was a little lethargic, actually, for such a peppy, uplifting old Broadway. Yeah, and with Sutton Foster, who's terrific, too, usually. So, yeah, yeah, uh, just um, didn't didn't quite work. I mean, Hugh's being Hugh and he's a credible talent and, and um, incredibly charismatic. But uh, 
the reviews are mixed and I would have to give it a mixed verdict. Yeah, that's well. the way I was going to feel about it. Plus, I was very angry. And you did write an article about this. And I don't know whether it's about this show, about the fact that Beetlejuice had to move so the music man could come in. And I loved Beetlejuice. I thought it was a terrific musical. You have no taste. I guess not. I write for Wall, uh, Vanity Fair. I write for the Wall Street Journal. I can write for pretty much anybody at this point in my life. But I will continue to write for the Post. I just... I don't really need, I was a columnist for so many years. I had, you know, a column twice a week, plus a Sunday story. And when you're on that treadmill of writing columns, it's sure. you finish a column. And then the next thing you got to think, what's the next column going to be? I mean, somebody, I think it was, I think it was George Bernard Shaw who said, being a columnist is like dodging the blades of a windmill. You dodge one, but there's another one coming right at you. So right. it's just, you know, always another column, always thinking, what's the next column going to be? What's next That reminded me of something else, too. You were just talking about, I think it's the either 10, I think it's a 10-year anniversary of Spider-Man Turn Off the Dark, which was the exact kind of opposite story to the one you told about Twyla Tharp sticking to her guns, which is what Julie Tamer did, and it didn't work out. No, she stuck to her guns and shot herself in the head. Exactly. That's why I was thinking that exact thing when you were telling me that Julie Tamer did the exact right. It worked out the exact opposite way of moving out. I mean, I, I knew when I was done with Spider-Man because that was the, the greatest gift in my career of all time because um, <laughs> it, it really made me well known all over the place. Uh, and I knew as I was finishing, as Spider-Man was coming to its tortured end, <laughs> I, I remember thinking, I said, I can I will never be able to top this. I will never have a show like this that has given me such great material. <laughs> Was that the biggest life. disaster you'd ever seen? Oh my God. Yeah. Lost a hundred million dollars. But I, yeah, I, will it, never, I, I will never see a show like this again. That gives me material to make the mischief. That was your life. Donald Trump for Bill Maher, you know, Pretty much. Like stuff like that. Right. Exactly. And I remember yeah. thinking, I said, I, I'm never going to top myself with this. And that's when I began to think I got to try something else. And also uh, because of my Spider-Man columns, uh, I got to be a regular on the Imus in the morning show with Imus. The more I did it with Don and got to see the mechanics of it, I thought, I, I, I think I could do this. I would really love to try this in my life. And I got my own radio show with Len Berman. And, you know, we, in our own way, we kind of recreate that mayhem in the morning, you know, just yeah. making fun of each other, making fun of everybody, having a lot of laughs, a little bit of news here and there. And just generally, you know, as the British say, taking the piss out of each other, which is, which is the most fun job in the world. I mean, when you have a great co-host like Len, I can say anything about Len. He's never offended. He can say anything about me and I'm never offended. We just, you yeah. know, we, we make fun of the idiocy of, of our lives. And it's amazing that you're happy there because you were, you know, a nighttime New York City guy. And now you're an early morning guy and you have to be an early well, riser. You would think that only, you wouldn't like that's the, the only drawback because. It was much more fun when I was out drinking martinis at two in the morning and sleeping till noon. Exactly. Now, now, I, now I'm having one glass of white wine at three in the afternoon and I'm in bed by seven. Uh, you don't have to tell us it's one. We know how it is. <laughs> nice try. Uh, but anyway, uh, just well, uh, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, this has been fantastic. I love all these stories. You know, I do. And um, your your book that you have out, Singular Sensation, The Triumph of Broadway, which your all your research is amazing. I love the Razzle Dazzle, which I really was one of the few books I actually read all the way through, which I know I'm not a reader. And of course, uh, WOR every day, six to 10 with Len Berman, Michael Riedel. You can also uh, stream it so anybody can listen to it all over the world. Uh, Michael Riedel, I'm Billy Joel, A to Z. Thanks, guys. From all about soul, way down to Zanzibar, it's still rock and roll, though we don't play no guitar. 
to see.